0: Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. In this episode, I have with me Larry Thomas. Larry is the Managing Director and North America Lead of Accenture's Customer Insight and Growth Practice, where he oversees the development and delivery of digital and marketing transformation services. During this episode, Larry and I discuss the insights he has gained about the customer experience, which include the importance of focusing on need states and data. He gives great advice on how organizations can transition toward customer centricity and the role and challenges of becoming agile. Larry will also answer some questions from Walton College of Business students. Questions on data privacy the ever-evolving needs of customers, and the new concept of Decade of the Whole. Hi, Larry. Thank you for coming, and welcome to It's a Customer's World. Thank you, Andy. we glad to be here. Excellent. Well, let me start by asking about your role and a bit on your personal or professional journey that's gotten to what you're doing now.
1: So I'm part of Accenture's newest venture. We started off about ten years ago, trying to become a new version of an agency called Accenture Interactive. So I'm part of that team. We're now in year ten of that uh, that organization, and I run our marketing consulting practice. So we advise CMOs and their and their colleagues and their team members on how to transform marketing organizations into a better version of themselves over time. And I joined Accenture about twenty or so years ago. Spend quite a bit of time in what we call strategies, so helping our clients figure out how to grow, how to get more growth, how to expand, how to innovate, and then over time became uh, very intrigued by the idea of a more customer-centric organization, the role of marketing, the role of sales, and how do you really help companies shift towards a more away from the product focus of the old days and to be more in line with what the customers expect and need. And I've worked most of my career in uh, consumer goods and retail.
0: Yeah, well, that's the perfect sweet spot of what our whole customer-centric leadership initiative is about. When you think about customer experience and how it has kind of come to the to the forefront of conversations at the exec level now more than ever, how is that trend? And I don't know if you would see it as a three or four one-year kind of explosion in trend, but how has that affected what Accenture Interactive does and thinks about?
1: And it really sort of put us on the map in a big way, right? So we were always from day one, 10 years ago, about the experience. We defined ourselves as the experience agency not as an agency with experience agency, so it's really been core to us to, to, uh, in our business to, uh, to help our clients reimagine the experience. And we look at that as not just the customer experience, which is the recipient of the goods and service, but also the uh, anybody in between that. So it's the, the reseller experience in a B2B world, the employee experience experience for citizens and humans. So we look at experience as a combination of what you receive or experience as an individual and the roles you play in your life, right? Being either a parent, being a patient, being a consumer, or being a recommender to somebody else. So we look at that as holistically part of our, of our agenda. How do you re- redefine the experience uh, um, of being a customer and being a lot more than that as an organization? So the world we're in now where experiences really matter more than, than anything else. Really is where we tend to to uh, to sort of feel like we're at home and we're doing the right thing for our clients. Help them get to a more experience-based uh, sort of future.
0: Well, that that's really interesting, and I've um, not thought about the experience as a framework for all of those different uh, potential stakeholders. Do you use a, the similar framework when you're designing for
1: experience? We do. We sort of begin with the human. All of us, even the roles we play at work and at home are ultimately all humans, right? So if I'm a, a buyer or a merchandiser at a retailer trying to buy products from a manufacturer or I'm a uh, a salesperson in an AT&T store trying to sell a service plan or, or a device, I'm also a human. So what I expect as a human from my experiences with other brands translates into what I what I do at my job, right? So we see this great equalizer of experiences happening. Set by brands like like Amazon, like Apple, with experiences seamless and and omnipresent, that translates into human lives. So we look at that as a the same framework. How of course different values are at stake if you're a consumer versus a, a patient. One's more on consumption, the other's more on health. If you're a, a citizen, you look for other values like certainty and safety and security as opposed to immediate satisfaction through consumption and retail. But ultimately, the framework is the same.
0: Yeah. One of the things that troubles me sometimes with customer experience is that customer by definition is a transaction. It's a word that describes a transactional event that's occurring. And yet when you say customer experience, really you're talking a human experience. And so I I probably should de-emphasize the word customer when you start saying customer experience, because that's a transactional almost experience than actually a human experience as you would describe
1: it. I think so. That's a good. That's a good way to summarize it. Um, I mean, the customer indeed is. It's, it's a very binary word, right? You're a customer, you are not a customer, and many companies focus on the customers they have as opposed to those they don't have. And saying why are they not a customer? Why are they not loyal to my brand? Why do they not don't care about my brand? Why they don't engage with my brand is a more important question than trying to sort of get those who could consume to buy more, right? So we think expanding the lens to say looking at all humans and their needs allows you to find more more customers, allows you to find more growth and allows you to expand what you do to be more relevant to, to humans across all their need states. So we see companies like, like Johnson & Johnson taking a view that where they're saying, we're not focused per se on, on products or services or segments of consumers, but more around need states, a need state as a young mother to take care of the, your newborn child, the need state of a patient who needs an artificial limb or uh, needs a medical device to help them. That need state is what we're trying to get after, not just the, the one-time customer who comes in and buys or doesn't buy.
0: When you start talking, well, you mentioned transforming organizations to be more customer-centric. What are some of the challenges? Because that can be a pretty daunting task by nature of how fluid and liquid that covers so much breadth inside a company. So what, what, do, what do you run into most often in some of the challenges to transitioning to more customer-centric leadership?
1: That's a great question. And I've gotten a question from a couple of, uh, of our clients in the past few days. And so the things we see most commonly is uh, companies really don't know who the customer is. They see a transaction record or receipt or they see somebody logging into a website and then there's a trail there of that person visiting the website. They really don't really know the customer. They may know what they bought when they bought it. They may know their interests, but they don't really know them as an individual. So the, the first big, big challenge is how really, how deeply do you understand and deeply understand the customer and, and all his or her facets. The second, which really is really the data, data challenge, right? And also a mindset challenge. The, the second big, big constraint is, like you pointed out before, that customers are not a, a one-time thing. There's a, a loyalty, there's relevance, so how do you think about the journey the customer goes through from evaluation uh, to consideration to purchase, to post-purchase? How do you play a role in that life cycle from beginning to end, not just when the uh, the purchase is being made? But the example I always give is, so like a lot of retailers like CVS know who you are when you check out. You get a long receipt when you check out at CVS and they know who you are. Uh, that's kind of late. You've already checked out. So how do I really understand the customer and their needs well ahead of the store being entered. So how do you think about the customer across all touch points uh, physical and, and digital that you, you can engage in? That's a big challenge. And the third I think is which I think is probably the biggest challenge of all is many companies are still very product focused. They take great pride in the product, the product, the service, the thing we sell or the thing we're known for. And it's really a, a bit of a push economy, right? I'm pushing up products. I hope you buy them. If you don't buy them, I'll discount them or I'll put out a big ad to tell you you really should buy this product as opposed to really being built from the ground up as a customer organization. So many companies are trying to become customer organizations but have a long heritage of being product and service focused. And that's sort of many times overshadowing the ability to really be customer centric.
0: Yeah, uh, well said, I agree agree with that. I think the um, question I have about your second point, I think was around getting to know the customer. With today's big data and customer data warehouses and such, you look at that as the source for finding insights about the customer and Guerrilla getting to know them versus more traditional approaches, perhaps of consumer research or observational research. How does that balance out in the mix and in terms of where you actually find this information, this insight about individuals?
1: So what we've seen Andy over time is that what people say they're going to do, which really is the part of, of panels of research and what they actually do is very different. So while there's no, still value in consumer panels and research and validation, behaviors are more important than an intent. And many customers, uh, sorry, many of our clients are still in the, in the mindset of, of, well, I've asked a customer six months ago what they wanted and built that thing for them. So while they're not using it, I have no idea. I really don't know what's going on. So the ability to really understand in real time how our consumers behaving? How can I understand that behavior? and adopt to it, change my promotions, change my assortment, change my flavor profiles, change my pricing, in real time becomes the key. And how do I do that with relevant content, with the right campaigns, with the right activation, with the right partners? That's really becoming the the battleground. So the ability to not only have the data around the, the, uh, the consumer, so looking at a consumer holistically and having a data lake that has all that data inside of it, but also being able to activate upon that in real time is the way to win. And companies who are founded upon the principle of customer centricity, like Warby Parker or other brands, that's for them a sort of first nature, not a second nature, it's a first nature. Many of the legacy organizations are trying to build that muscle and are dealing with the complexity of the IT organization, the marketing organization, the sales organization, the finance team, the inability to spend money. So they tend to be putting band-aids on solutions as opposed to trying to really reset themselves to a different future. So I think it's in part the inability to understand how real-time data matters more than historical data or uh, preference data. And the second part is the inability to make that happen given how complex companies have become.
0: Yeah, well, let's get to complexity here in a minute. But the thing about Warby Parker and other pure play brands, they have a real advantage in almost every touch point in the customer journey. It can be captured in data where you look at a physical retail store that maybe is a more traditional model. They they're missing a lot of the touch points that inform the customer journey and getting it into those data lakes yet is still a bit ways off.
1: No, I agree. I think those companies that you mentioned, I've said publicly, we're a data company. We're a data company first. And we use the data to optimize what we're gonna what we're gonna sell, who we're gonna to sell to, and where we're gonna sell from, either retail store or digital. So those who have a, a data sort of mindset tend to uh, to really understand the consumer more holistically and are able to drive activation against that, that consumer need more quickly than the, the legacy organizations.
0: What I'm, I'm seeing also uh, from some of the conversations I've been having around customer centricity is that traditional brick and mortar retail now with the online sales accelerated so much through what we've seen through COVID in particular, you're starting to get the pure play-ish type digital mindset pushed up against the more physical based retail mindset in those two worlds. You've got an agile world in a more hierarchical operational world that are coming together. And it, it does put some pressure on how you think about agile. And some companies are just, well, you just roll out agile everywhere. Others are saying, you know what? You got to still harmonize the agile technique and methods that are great for product development and iterative and test and learn but also the the Friday payroll bit of the operational side. And so are you running into those challenges somewhat? Because I think you did say the organizational, number three, the organizational frameworks for legacy makes it a bit harder to get to customer centricity.
1: Yeah, we, we, that's, that's a big, big challenge, right? So many companies that we've uh, come to love and admire over the past decades were built for the economy of scale. They were built for economy of scale, the public companies, have quarterly earnings, if there's anything that goes off the rails, sort of the, the stock market uh, throws up their, their hands in, in disarray. So they're built for this machine of predictability and scale. Other companies don't have that that problem, right? So they're, they're able to be a bit more uh, focused on doing it the right way. Uh, having said that, so many companies that we're talking to now, it's not per se about uh, just agile and getting, getting to be more responsive, it's about speed. We believe the currency powered by digital, powered by data, is speed. The ability to predict, and if not predicting, reacting to market developments rapidly is becoming the the way to win. And the challenge companies have is how do I get the whole organization to work at a higher speed, right? And if you're a multi-branded organization, you have a sort of a, a experienced brand and a commodity brand. So the example I would give you is if you're, um, you're Johnson & Johnson, and you have a skincare brand, which is an experienced brand, then you have mouthwash, which really is, a commodity brand, yeah, central, or, yeah. or, for argument's sake. I mean, of course, they would argue that, but- Yeah, no, and do you mean? How do I work on two speeds? I have a speed of constantly reinventing the experience, making sure I'm relevant. I constantly have to change my offer, my promotions, my engagement. And then I have to produce mouthwash at large quantities and define flavor profiles and sell them at, at large quantities, right? So how do I run at two speeds? That's been the challenge. And so the, the biggest challenge we had is how do companies understand- that speed matters. And how do I get between those two bookends of a repeatable slow speed and a high speed organization, how do I get both those companies to move faster, those brands move faster? And that comes from, as you said, adopting agile, that comes from experimentation, that comes from being focused on data, what data telling us, listening the data, and then making changes and strategies based on the data. It also comes from talking to consumers. So less guessing and more knowing allows you to be more responsive and more agile. Many companies are still guessing, right? They're guessing that a client wants this flavor of of mouthwash, that they want another flavor of lip balm because they don't always want that. So asking and listening is probably the undervalued part of uh, being more agile and being faster.
0: Yeah, I have two points on that. I think one, I I do see more people applying their customer experience skill sets toward removing dissatisfiers. Which that's actually pretty easy. I don't to say it's easy to implement, but I mean it's easier to spot to know because the customers are telling you they don't like this. But it's a lot harder to find what is it they don't know, and how do you find out where that customer really wants to go? That's the harder place to play, and so it hasn't really been applied to that as much as eliminating friction or removing hassle and those kind of things. From what I've seen. Yep. Yep. The um. One of the things that I'm interested in is creativity, because when you start scaling, or if you look at industrial, uh, since the Industrial Revolution, really, large organizations have done a great job of scaling efficiency and becoming more and more efficient as you take cost out of systems and such. And so that includes sometimes the discretionary time and headspace you need to come up with new ideas that gets compressed quite a bit. What's your thought on how a creativity plays into agile, customer centricity, responding? It seems like we're going to need a bit more of a different mindset on creativity in large organizations if we're ever going to get the headspace required to even come up with the hypothesis to go test.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. I'm not sure if I have a uh, the perfect answer, but I'll, I'll give you sort of my two cents on on that question. So I think creativity while it is important, has to be in service of a bigger goal, right? So what I've seen uh, one of my clients do really well is apply things like design thinking as a methodology to every business challenge. So putting the customer in front of every business challenge. So if the business challenge is how do we minimize the financial close process from four days to two days, how do you put a human lens to that? And how do you, what does that mean to the finance organization, to the controller, to the general managers, to the people in accounts payable? So taking a human lens to all these business challenges, I think allows for a different approach to things, a different a different outcome. And that I think is creativity, right? So taking a different lens to try to solve things that would probably be viewed as a very mechanical problem or process. So I don't think it's by, per se about letting the creatives in the organization take over the building or having those who are engineers suddenly be forced to be creative. It's more around how do you take a a simple mindset around the human you're trying to engage or the problem you're trying to solve for and the outcomes you're trying to achieve and and use that, that technique or that mindset in any problem you're trying to address. And I think design thinking is a good example of that. That's great. And how important
0: do you think it is the employee experience becomes almost integrated with customer experiences. Is it a precursor to start working on customer experience, to focus on employee experience? A few people I've talked to really emphasize that's your starting point per se.
1: I would normally say it depends. That's what consultants do for a living. So I'm not gonna say that, because it doesn't depend. I think that things happen in tandem. So if I'm I'm playing out the example of a call I had last week with a client. So if I'm running a large call center for a telecom provider, and I'm I have people who are getting phone calls about their phone bill or about their their plan or how to add a line to the plan. And I have a shitty employee experience, it's pretty hard to get that person to be really, really good on, on the phone with a customer. On the other hand, if I don't really care about the customer experience that much, the employee will feel fully empowered because they've been sort of experienced, but they don't know how to how to channel that, that passion or energy to a customer, right? So I think you have to do them both at the same time. You have to recognize that the pathway to a world-class customer experience is a better employee experience, but the two of them can't exist without each other. So I think you need to sort of reimagine not only the sales experience If I'm a B2B organization, I'm trying to reimagine how I sell to a a retailer. They also need to think about how does a salesperson experience his or her job in my company? And do they have all the tools they need in terms of collaboration, in terms of of access to, to, to information, uh, the ability to work virtually, to be able to play that role with confidence in front of the customer.
0: Well, I would think almost any person, uh, employee that's interacting with customers, the, the word empathy comes to mind as a real key skill set for uh, doing that
1: well. I think empathy, I think back to our opening, our opening sort of discussion about hu- a human, right? Being a true human, uh, being a good listener, being empathetic, caring about the customer, caring about their needs and trying to solve those needs. That's a, that's a human trait. And somehow in the world of what you mentioned before, customers are, are transactions. We've lost that humanity of how we help each other and serve each other. And I think in a, in a, in a world where we're dealing with the aftermath or the, the active impacts of COVID, being human, being genuine, caring about each other is a, a value that we think is, uh, is, is more than ever important in every experience we uh, either shape or we go through.
0: Yeah, I would love to see if there's a KPI out there because we're all driven by KPIs, right? We live and respond to these KPIs and you, you brought up call centers. I'm not sure I've seen a call center KPI that ranks human empathetic interaction as a KPI, it's typically like how fast you get them off the phone and and not even sure how many KPIs are designed around, were they really satisfied with that response? And so do you think human empathy is a crazy uh, abstract question, but you know, how would you measure human empathy in perhaps a call center?
1: It's interesting because you, you sort of, uh, you triggered a thought in my head as you were talking. So call centers are incented for you to not call back, right? They want you to stop calling them. That's sort of the, the, the incentive. Can we can we get the call done quickly? Can we get it done in the first attempt? With the goal is to to not not have you call us back, which is kind of bizarre, right? If you really do a really good job in a call center environment, and you really have a really good with somebody really good conversation, and you solve them, you want them to call back and order more or buy more or engage more. So this whole reverse sort of uh, uh, objectives for call centers is interesting thought to. Uh, to ponder on right. Do I really want to incent more calls and more human contact, opposed to trying to minimize the inbound calls and making it uh, through automated response systems or through pre predefined answers to uh, ill defined questions? It doesn't work that way. It's not how humans are designed to uh, to operate.
0: Well, I think you'll know if you're a truly a customer centric organization when you start wrestling with those questions at the face of customer experience and call centers where i mean i tell you it's a very emotional connection point and you've got a high lifetime value customer on the phone and don't even know it because your call center data is not connected to your customer data you could get into real trouble real
1: fast No, exactly i mean you and i probably uh before COVID traveled quite a bit and if you have a good experience with an airline uh, agent on the phone to make a change to a, to a ticket or try to get a, a schedule change made uh, people take care of your, your point balance, you'll call them again. Why would I go online if I can actually, somebody can solve for me on the phone and it's much more human and we have a, we have a good chat about it and they're, they listen to me, listen to them, I'd call them again and again and again. So I'm loyal to the brand because of the call center experience, not because of, I was told to, uh, to press one for, for Spanish and two for, uh, for English.
0: 100%. Such is the challenges when we get so focused on operational efficiency, perhaps than valuing that customer experience. But I do think that's starting to change. Uh, Larry, I have the privilege of working with the Walton College of Business and the always proactive professor, Molly Rapert in the marketing department, heard that you and I were going to be speaking today. And so she gathered a few questions from some students. Do you mind if I take a few minutes and uh, play those for you? I would
1: love that. It sounds fantastic.
0: Excellent. Well, the first question is from Ali. She is a double major in marketing and supply chain. Let's take a listen to her question.
1: Hi, Mr. Thomas. My name is Ali sato and I really enjoyed you reading your discussion on LinkedIn where you state we believe that immersive experiences such as VR, AR, and MR are at the center of the next wave of digital commerce. My honors thesis focuses on privacy concerns related to digital devices. So I would really love to know your views on what consumers should expect relative to privacy and digital commerce. Ali, that's a great question. And I love your double major, both marketing and supply chain. You have sort of supply and demand combined in one major. That's fantastic, really, really great. It's It's a fantastic question. So privacy is a big, big topic. I think there's a a shift happening in in the world of privacy, this is my opinion, where consumers are willing to share more if there's a a return to that sharing, right? So I think in some countries, like in Europe, there are pretty strict GDPR policies in place to protect consumers' privacy. But I think consumers, certainly as the younger generations become uh, real consumers and buyers of of, a array of services, there's a trust exchange. Or exchange of, of privacy happening. So I will tell you about me if whatever you give me in return is highly relevant to me and highly personalized and something I, I care about and I trust that you will keep that information safe from others. So I think the the question here is is about uh, trust and confidence. Do I have confidence that the brand that I'm trusting my data to or with is taking care of of that that data and that, and that content as a good good partner? And I'm getting a return for that For that trust, products and services that are relevant to me. I'm not getting ads that don't matter. I'm getting things that are targeted to me. When I care about them, I don't get the, the random emails. I get focused emails. I get a, a focused ping on my phone with a promotion that I care about when I care about it. And I trust that brand to fulfill that promise, right? So I think a privacy and trust are becoming more connected and privacy is a um, condition by which I will trust the brand. And I think commerce is, is important. I think if, I, if the transactions that we have in e-commerce or digital commerce are becoming more immersive, meaning um, you're involved more in the experience yourself as an individual, you will give more. But then, you, of course, you expect in return that to be safeguarded and, and used only for the servants of, for the servants of you.
0: Uh, great answer. Thank you for that. This next question comes from Grace Sugg. She is a marketing major.
1: Just in my lifetime, I can think of many ways we as customers have changed how we want to shop, the products we want to buy, and everything in between. So when you make the point about meeting the ever-evolving needs of customers means effectively remaining in a permanent state of change, how have you helped implement this idea at your company? That's another good question, Grace. So we believe that certainly in the world we live in now, after all that happened since since March, human needs are more important than, than, than one-time desires, right? So the people want to get on Zoom calls, not because they think Zoom's a great tool, but because they want to talk and see their friends and family. People um, are asking for advice around health and wellness because they want to live healthier lifestyles now that they're sort of, sort of stuck in the world, they, they're in the location that they're in. So we believe that companies who think about sort of the current reality as a health crisis, how do, I help, how do I help my consumers become healthier and live a healthier lifestyle? Companies would think about the current situation as, a, as a, a moment in time to really create trust between the brand and the consumer, that the brand is there to take care of them and help them in these uncertain times. I, so we help companies do that. So we help teleco companies shift from making the experience in retail stores, which is important but frustrating. How does that shift into a much more seamless experience online across all touch points? We help retailers faced with a, uh, a future of pickup only turn that into an experience where the, the, the ordering of food, the pickup of food, the delivery of food becomes a, an immersive experience that you can sort of uh, fulfill across all kind of uh, touch points. We help insurance companies where in the past you were forced to work with an insurance agent who would explain to you how a complex insurance is and why you need to buy all these things because that's what you have to do. To a world where buying insurance through a, through an online portal becomes natural and seamless so we're helping again uh, uh people who are dealing with these historical perceptions around things are hard to get things are difficult to uh, to fulfill become more human and more experience led across all touch points
0: mm. great answer fascinating the next question comes from shelby hansen and she is a marketing and finance major
1: Mr. Thomas, I read your recent post on LinkedIn where you state that homes are the new hubs. Recent consumer research shows that as a result of COVID-19, 67% of people plan to do most of their socializing at home or virtually. When you think of the impact of COVID on behaviors, how long do you think this particular behavioral change will last and what factors will impact that longevity? That's a great question. Yes, we talk about that as we use the, the term cocooning. So we believe this is the decade of the home. So that implies this will last at least eight to nine years, this, this reality. So we, we truly believe that consumers will make decisions on how they live their lives with a home at the core. That was already underway pre-COVID. So if you, if you think about the way the traditional consumer goods companies, for instance, or, or car companies would advertise, they would focus heavily on, on the, um, the, the channel. The retail store or the dealership. Uh, you, you've seen in the years leading up to, to COVID that people were were engaging with brands through social platforms while commuting while b- being at home. So the, the the home was already becoming a bit of the the central point of, of consumers' decision around what am I going to buy. Uh, Amazon, of course, helped with that as well. And uh, now we're in the area of what we call cocooning. Right, the, the home is where where everything happens so this is where safety is guaranteed that's where you take care of your health and wellness so you take your classes at home virtually you uh, you make your your food cho- food choices you have food delivered uh, because you want to be safe and healthy at home so we think this this cocooning will, will last another 8 or 9 years that means that brands need to find a way to enter the home not through salesmen knocking on the door saying hey here's a here's a uh, and encyclopedia to buy, but it's more around how do you have the content that's relevant to consumers at their fingertips and knowing what, where they are, what they're doing with that with that content. So the ability to have a presence in the home, the ability to be in consumer's mind in the home, and even think about your messaging around uh, marketing and, and advertising around the home is super, super important. I don't think people will return to, uh, to, to buying things at stores in large quantities. If you did a research uh, a few weeks ago for telco companies and of all customers of telco companies, three quarters said, if the store went away, I wouldn't be sad because they believe they can fulfill all their needs in their own environments and their own conditions and terms. So I think the home is here to stay. And I, I think that's a, a great way to uh, to think about the role brands could play in somebody's trusted environment.
0: You know, it's a, it's a great question. And I think your answer is really interesting. If you look at the mouthwash category, for example, if if customers, people can figure out they can get the essentials online pretty easily. Ah, uh, think of what that does to brands that you're not the pick of, and the because basically online is not a great browsing experience. And the one thing about a store shelf in that retail space is you have a chance. You have a chance to be picked versus another brand if there's some browsing behavior that goes on. But but if the essential categories go online and stay online then the purpose of a physical store better deliver some better browsing experiences because and you could probably do some of the categories that you mentioned earlier where it might be uh, cosmetics or things that are just more better for browsing and it's gonna be really hard probably to get in the minds of consumers if that category is shifted and you're on autopilot and you're stuck in an essential category
1: Yeah, we were doing some work uh, with a client this week and last week in the middle of this project right now, where we're helping this company launch a new nutritional bar with all kinds of ingredients into a new market. And as you would know uh, as well, Andy, the strategy in the past was put it on the shelf, as many stores as you can, clutter the shelves, put up a big TV ad, have a few promotional coupons or, or trade promotional events happening, and then let's hope it all works out for us, right? we were talking about a different way to launch the brand, which is really around how do you launch the brand as part of a health and wellness ecosystem? So how do you connect uh, consumers with healthcare providers? Think about that as uh, yoga instructors, meditation instructors, and how does the brand, how does the brand become known for the, the connector between the consumer and the health and wellness providers? And by doing that could recommend certain products, could sell merchandise and sort of launch a brand that way. So you launch a brand in digital health and wellness uh, mindset as opposed to physically being on shelves at buy one, get three promotional events and hoping that uh, the masses just pick it up while they're checking out. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing companies shift their product launch strategies to be very different, not only different in terms of digital, but different in terms of the intent behind the launch.
0: Yeah. I can see that. I mean, that's going to be a real challenge, especially for those that are trying to cut through. I, I think even private brands in uh, come from a grocery retail background primarily, and you know that don't have any marketing spend behind them in an essential category. You're going to have to really think through the whole customer journey in a different way. I think, to figure out how to get in that consumer's mindset through digital or, like you said, the the affiliation of health and and really moving into that space in a much more intentional way in that discovery, the phase of of buying. So that's, that's good. I have one last uh, question from a student, and this is uh, Matt Barber, and I think you'll enjoy this one too. Hey, Larry. I've got a question today about Accenture. Accenture is known as a company that really seeks out young talent and does a good job of hiring recent college graduates as opposed to a company that's more reluctant to do so and uh, probably focuses more on experience. So I was wondering if Accenture has had to change this strategy at all due to COVID and
1: uh, what you guys are doing differently in terms of recruitment and retention during these times. And Matt, that's a great question. So no, we have not changed our strategy. We, we deeply believe in an inclusive and diverse organization powered by young, talented people. So our commitments to, uh, to, to college uh, recruiting are still very, very strong. We, we would prefer somebody who comes in fresh with a new mindset than somebody who's been, been around for a long time because we believe that the creativity comes from new mindsets, not from trying to repeat what you've done elsewhere over and over again. So we're very, very, very committed to, uh, to recruiting uh, globally and including the US uh, on campus. We're also changing our profiles a bit in recruiting. So where we used to look for people who had a one skill that was really, really deep, we now look for people who have multiple skills. So can somebody be a marketing person and a data scientist? You actually can. Can somebody be a technologist and a creative person? They exist as people. So we're looking for sort of multi-talented individuals as opposed to the conventional sort of functional box that people would put into very, very early. And we're also committed to, uh, for those who enter... The Accenture organization to give people a uh, even a wider experience across all things we do. So you come into Accenture and you work into our, in our strategy group, in our technology group, in our interactive group, uh, and you sort of learn all we do, and then you can make your career choices in a more informed way as you, as you progress in your career. So we do believe in the, uh, the rotations across parts of the firm, which are becoming actually easier in a virtual world than they are in the past where you're tied to physical locations. So we're super committed to college recruiting and really growing our firm from the bottom up, not just from the top down.
0: Well, that's a great segue to the last question I have for you. Uh, This will get shown to several students, uh, several seniors that'll be graduating in May, hopefully, and entering the workforce. As you look to the future, what's coming the next couple of years or such, what would you say to those students that would give them hope?
1: A few things. I, I think there is uh, looking at the clients that I that I work with. There's still incredibly incredible amounts of untapped growth in many companies. Companies uh, are just have a lot of, lot of area for improvement when it comes to being customer centric. When it comes to using data and technology to identify and serve customer needs. So I think there's quite a bit of of untapped growth potential for some of the big U.S. organizations uh, and their and their customers. The second thing I, I would say is the younger people that join the workforce are often better than those that have been here for a long time, including myself, because they come with a different mindset. It's using technology is part of who you are. Uh, using data, understanding data is part of who you are. Being able to be creative and be able to be sort of uh, um, creative and challenging status quo is, is who you are. This generation coming into the workforce has a lot, a lot to offer to, to many organizations. The last thing I'll say is I do think that the area that we're talking about today, customer experience, marketing, commerce, sales, are areas where I think um, the human aspect remains very, very important. So you can see a world where supply chain and manufacturing is is run by robots or run by bots in factories or run by algorithms. I think the, the ability to create an experience that's human, the ability to engage customers as humans the ability to reimagine and constantly change as the world around us changes is a skill we as humans have. So I think those who are pursuing a career in marketing and sales and commerce and technology supporting that will have a wonderful career for for many, many years to come. So I look forward to meeting all of you, hopefully at Accenture in the near future.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Larry. You've been a generous guest, and I really appreciate the experience you bring to this topic uh, and great success at Accenture Interactive. I'll make sure there's some links for people to get a hold of you in the uh, show notes. And so, any final comments before we uh, we end?
1: No, just thank you, Andy, for the uh, for the chance to be part of your your podcast. This was a, a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So, if you want to do it again and we change topics, I'm happy to uh, to be a returning guest if that's something you'd consider. For those who want to know more about Accenture Interactive or what we do, I guess, as Andy said, you'll have my contact information to reach out to. And uh, thanks again for all you're doing. I think this is an important movement uh, that you're trying to get going here at the university. Let's hope that other universities and other companies embrace it. We really become a truly customer-centric society where where humans and customers matter more than transactions and, and events.
0: I love it. And you can count on that, uh, me following up with that invite. I think there's some big things ahead we could do to work together in, in a lot of different areas, leveraging your background and experiences and what Accenture does. So um, looking forward to the future and thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Andy. Talk to you soon.
0: Thanks for listening to that insightful conversation with Larry Thomas. Larry has led Accenture Interactive for many years now, and he discussed some incredibly relevant insights about customer-centric leadership. He also shared some great insights on the role of agile in customer experience and gave great advice to students getting ready to join the workforce and be change makers in their organizations. Thank you, Larry. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast as a product of the University of Arkansas Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Walton College original production.